Hello, hello, friends on Facebook, and hello, hello, our lovely Mastermind Space community. I am really, really excited to be having Rael Bricker with us today. Hi, Rael. Hey, Gil, how are you? Good, good. Actually, in the same time zone for a change, which makes a big difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know we have people from all different corners of, of the world that have asked to join. Many of our friends in Europe and in Russia have said, no, it's five o'clock in the morning where we are. Come on. But that's why we decided to kind of change the format a little bit and have this more focus for our friends who are maybe in the US and Australia and New Zealand and Asia first thing in the morning for them. And for everyone else, they'll be able to watch it later on, either on Mastermind Space Community or, of course, on Facebook as well. So, Rael, I'm personally very, very excited to have you because, you know, I've been following you for the last couple of years since we met through the Speaker Association. And one of the things that always stood out for me is you're someone that's really changing companies around you. And the easiest way you're changing them is by, you know, tackling the culture, looking at how people interact and looking how people just behave within an organization in general. And I love you're going to tell us about those colors behind you in a minute. I'm really excited about that. But, Rael, for people who don't know the the history so i know you're you know you're from johannesburg originally but can you give us that you know first 20 years of your life who was rael bricker and what was that story about him no problem so yeah so i grew up in Johann i was actually born in a little town in the middle of the desert but grew up most of my life in johannesburg the uh, my parents are three quarters Lithu my grandparents three quarters lithuanian so give you a bit of family genealogy there so three quarters of my heritage is Lithuanian. I studied at university, I did two master's degrees. I did an engineering degree, a master's and an MBA as well. Started, um, worked underground on the mines in the late 80s, which was an interesting time in South Africa. Um, a lot of activism to drop apartheid at, at the time. Um, quite a volatile country in, in the 80s. Um, in 1990, I started my first business which was a bit weird because I was a 25 year old MBA graduate and I thought I'd teach the world how to run their businesses. The only challenge was I'd never really run a business myself. Um, that business morphed into an education business. And, and one of my principles in life is you've got to be active. You've got to be in the right place at the right time. And, but you don't know where the right place is. So you've got to keep doing things. And we started an education business six months after the release of Nelson Mandela and uh, the dropping of apartheid and three years before the first democratic elections. But what that meant was that there was this hunger for black education in South Africa. And so our education business that we, we morphed into grew from 20 students in 1990 to 4,000 students by 1996 uh, with six campuses around South Africa. Um, wow. And so that was an, an amazing journey it was where a lot of my business principles were really formed because we had no money. We had to market on the sly. We had to find cheap ways of marketing, clever ways of marketing and doing lots of things that we made lots of mistakes at the time as well. But it was an incredible experience in early 2000 uh, in early 1996, I was threatened with an AK 47 um, because one of my students had thrown a cup of coffee over someone's car in the road. So that puts into context what South Africa was like. Um, a guy came in and said, well, next time he's not going to ask questions. He's just going to take out his AK-47 that he brought to show me that he really had one and start, he'll start shooting at the windows. So that was when we sold our education businesses into a listed company 
went into merged acquisitions, did nine acquisitions for them over 18 months, grew it from a 90 cent share to a 14 rand share in those 18 months, just through acquisition. I went into venture capital after that, um, joined a fund in South Africa, came to Australia, joined another fund and listed that on the ASX in 2000. 2001, they said, do I want to move the idyllic place of Perth? And I said, no, I don't want to move from here. And they said, I said, we'll part ways. And I went into finance and um, that finance business I still own. It's done 3 billion in mortgages since inception 20 years ago or 19 years ago. And six years ago, the mortgage industry asked me to talk at their conference on how to build a mortgage business. And I went, that was fun. Let's write a book on that. So I wrote a book on that. And that what morphed me into being a professional speaker um, wow. over the last six years. So um, my mortgage business was built on the back of me speaking. I've spent 16 years talking to people off stage about mortgages, finance, investing, building portfolios. But I shifted six years ago to talking more about business and how to build businesses and how to create businesses. And then about three years ago, I shifted that focus even more narrowly into culture. And at the advice of one of my mentors who um, is based out of um, Singapore, he said to me, go and interview companies around the world to give your, your clients and your audience global experience. And so far I've done 87 interviews in 25 different countries. And when I speak about culture to audiences and to clients, I'm using the global collective experience of 87 different companies so far. So that's, that's where I am today. And that uh, as a speaker, um, as a coach, as a mentor, um, and that's what I do. It really, really a, a, a exciting journey you've had. And I know that, um, you know, in a lot of your speeches, uh, you mentioned about your successes and your failures. And it's something I love. And I know that many of our community leaders are entrepreneurs. You know, we, we tend to focus on people who are movers, movers and shakers, people who are really trying to activate the collective genius and, you know, learn from the world. And when I, I, I saw you, that um, you have a book that, you know, I'll be very, very honest. I'm not really big on reading books. I'm looking forward to your audio book. Whenever you, you have that, that, I'm going to jump right into that. Uh, but I, I, you know, when I looked into your book and, you know, dive in lessons learned since business school, uh, I really fell in love with that. Um, I really fell in love with this, um, you know, this opportunity, um, this, um, uh, up, you know, this openness, because for me personally, I never really went to business school, even though I, I really wanted to learn business, but it's more about the lessons that I've really learned since that wanting to go to school that really transformed my life. And I see so many people with, with you know, business school education. So I'm going to dive in, you know, um, and, and really ask you a couple of things that's really important. So some of them might be a little bit controversial, but do you think business school is needed for people today who want to make a difference in the world? Um, no, I don't. I mean, I think, I think coming out of engineering, so let's just start with my background. I came out of an electrical engineering background. I actually had, did both my masters at the same time. So I was very heavily involved in that, but I knew I wanted to be in business. But engineering as a degree didn't give me any, any kind of inkling of what to do when I was the sitting in the boss's chair. And so that's why you get a lot of failed people in the corporate hierarchy because they don't have that background. So for me, business school, I went to business school to learn a lot about a lot of different things 
but not a lot about one thing. In other words, I learned about human resources. I learned about entrepreneurship. I learned about all these things, none of which made me an expert. I learned about economics. I learned about finance. But I was never an expert in any of those, but I had enough knowledge to apply to my business. So was business school good for me in that way? Absolutely. Is it a prerequisite to be an entrepreneur and a businessman? Not at all. But it depends on someone's background. I made the decision to go there because I was in a highly technical background and I wanted to get an understanding of things that I'd never dealt with before. So human psychology, how to deal with teams. You know, we, we obviously studied the academic view of that and, and all I've learned and, and was, my book was inspired by exactly that was I learned these theories of business school. How did I apply them in real life over 30 years in business? And so that's where the idea of the book came from was, was that this gave me the basic foundation. So is business school an essential? No, but is knowledge essential? Absolutely. Okay. Knowledge is an absolutely essential part of it. So, you know, if you are in business and I get a lot of people that I, I consult to and work with now clients and they say, um, well, I don't really understand financials. Well, you can't be in business if you don't understand financials. So, Go out and find somebody who can help you learn. Not that you ever have to draw up your own financials. You know, I'm not saying if you're a businessman selling, you know, electrical cable, whatever it is, you don't have to draw up your own financials. Have a bookkeeper doing that for you, but understand what they're doing. If you don't understand what those people are doing, understand the value they add into your business, you can't run a business. So hope that answers your question. I think business school is a fantastic opportunity and it taught me to uh, cooperate. You know, you put 48 type personalities in a room and then you split them into groups of six and say cooperate with each other. You have to learn a bit of give and take. And that was the probably one of the biggest lessons besides the knowledge was the cooperation with other forceful A type personalities. Nice. So, you know, I, I'd like to, to come back to the personalities because for me, that's a really uh, important subject of today and how you support organizations of different sizes to really shift their culture and achieve more success because of that, you know, from everything I've seen that you do, which is really, to me, magic with people. You just make a few shifts here and there in the way the culture of the company works and suddenly the company flourishes. But just... Come back to the education part, because for me, that's a, that's a massive part of my life. I know that, you know, most of the community that, um, that we have around us are people that are really into personal development. And so I didn't really do well in high school. I got kicked out of multiple high schools, never went to university. But when I looked at friends going to university uh, and, you know, I, for me, um, university and management school looked cool from a networking point of view, you know building up that culture within and in that age group where you're connecting with people. It's really amazing. Tell me, you know, before we get into the, the colors from a cultural point of view, what you teach organization, how does networking come into that? Because the way people think, well, I went to school with these people. This is my network. They can maybe help me get a job or this is the, you know, the ecosystem I'm in. So people, many times they blame their schools they went to for not being able to be successful. I didn't pick this up in school or, you know, people blame school for not speaking a language well enough or not knowing something well enough. Or like, I keep on telling people whenever I don't know something, I'm like, well, I think I missed that class and, and, uh, you know, in my MBA, but let me go check out the answer in Google very quickly. Um, 
And then I tell them, yeah, I never went to school, so I missed a lot of classes. Uh, but tell me, how does that connect? Because for me, you know, I think, you know, networking is such an important part. Human networking is something I've been studying for 10 years now, the art and the sciences of it. But when looking at the colors and people types and how that connects to the, the culture, where does networking come into that? Where does the, the way they networking, interact in the company? Networking comes in because, um, A, you have to create a, an environment where people are happy to ask for help. And so it's culturally in an organization, if you create a culture where nobody's prepared to admit they don't know. And so, you know, again, a, a key business principle in, in and, and a good example is in finance. Let me just step aside there, but it'll explain it. The, at the moment, we in my finance business, my team deal with 40 to 50 lenders. So, and each one has 10 products. That's 500 products. I would never expect any one of them to know the intimate detail of those 500 products off the top of their head. But they have enough knowledge about the broad industry to say to somebody they're talking to, look, I will go and find out I'll go and find out the right answer for you, you know, in an hour. I will, in, in an hour, I'll come back to you with the right answer because it's about this area, but I'll give you an exact answer shortly. So that's the, the kind of knowledge piece. But if you create that culture in an organization where people are prepared to ask for help. And so we, again, going back to my financial group, we often, we have a, a WhatsApp group for the team and we'll often have a message where someone will come out and say, oh, look, I've just seen a client. Who do you guys think would be the best for this client? So it's about asking for help. It's that culture. In terms of networking, the other thing that, that's critical is to remember that even if you dropped out of high, your, your high school and the people you still met along your path, you're not really trying to ever sell to them. Okay, your the, the key is to sell to their networks, and and I use sales, but communication, whatever an, an analogy you want to use for that. But with networking, and even in an organisation, you know, I get friends calling me and saying, "Oh, I was looking on social media. I see you connected with X. Please, can you connect me, or can you can you do it?" It's not that they want to sell to me; they want to sell to my network, and they want a soft introduction. The same thing applies in an organisation. It's about, you know, as the organizations get larger and more siloed and individual silos and people fight for power, the most successful organizations are those where the silos at a lower level communicate because they network. They realize they need the resources of that silo and they are not afraid to ask for it because asking is often seen sometimes as a weakness. And if the management can promote asking as a strength, not a weakness, it changes the way you develop your culture. Nice, wow, that's, to me that's awesome. And I think I could talk to you about this for hours and I, I wanna use that to segue and dive kind of deeper a little bit into, you know, your superpowers and how you, you know, come and adjust cultures in the company. So definitely tell me about these colors behind you. And I wanna come back to the networking party because I'm assuming that the yellows and the, and the greens maybe don't network as well together. Well, um, no, they, they, they do. So, so the colors back, I don't know me, anything about the colors. Okay, that's fine. Colors. I'll, I'll give you the very brief overview. The colors behind me were developed um, by a company that I work with um, out of the UK called Integris. And, and they looked at the traditional disc profiling or disc, disc behavioral profiling and said, 
The problem with DISC is that most people just used it for human resources, for maybe a little bit of team building. You know, I told them with quite a detailed information. But if I said to you or, you know, anyone on the call, yeah, you're a DI, in three months' time, I asked them, what did your DISC profile say? They'd go, huh? But if I told them they're a red-yellow combination, they will remember that. So that's the first power of the colors, is that each of the four definitive behavioral styles are assigned a color. Uh, this is a bit of a pattern interrupt behind me because we normally talk of red, yellow, green, and blue in that order. And I've deliberately put them in a different order as a pattern interrupt for when I talk to people. So just to make them think, oh, I've gone in a different order in terms of the colors behind me. But so what it means is that very, very, in a broad overview, red, people who are red behaviorally make decisions quickly and generally are easy to do business with. Yellows are more in, concerned about my decision, how will it impact my team? How will it impact the people around me? Greens are much more focused on interpersonal one-on-one -on -one relationships. They will deal with you if they've built a relationship, so no like and trust. And blues are very detail-oriented. Those are the, the people that make our organizations sizzle. Those are the people that make our organizations run because they are the people who, you know, make the accountants and the, the, the detail-oriented people in the organization. And so they need time to make a decision. So don't ask them to make a decision by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Tell them they've got, you know, till Wednesday at 5 to make it. Then they're happy but they want 12 spreadsheets of information to know the detail. And so when you look at those, and every organization needs all four of those, all four of those behavioral styles, and, and nobody is one style. Everybody's a combination of those. But the key to communication is if you understand somebody's style, then you know what words to use to go core, to the core of their behavior and get them to act. Because at the end of the day, no matter whether you're selling, or you're just communicating in a, a meeting in a corporation or an organization, you've got a staff meeting and you want to share ideas and push some ideas along. If you understand people's behavior, you use the right words to attract the right people. So that's where the colors are just an easy way of dealing with the brain and getting the brain to acknowledge colors. So to me, it, it's super fascinating because, you know, I've, um, over the years, because I didn't go to school and I didn't, you know, really study much like most people did, I try to study, like you're saying, after school, what do you study? How do you learn? How do you find teachers? How do you find mentors? Like, I love that you're in the education world with like with thousands of, of students behind you. To me, that was the exciting part. And I'm curious. So, you know, you go to an organization and you've worked with so many organizations around the world. And you got, you know, you got a big team sometimes with some organizations, they're huge. But what about those small companies? You know, a lot of my friends, they have small companies, 10 to 50 people maybe. You know, they're not yet doing billions. They're doing, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 million dollars a year. And this is not necessarily their highest priority in their mind because they're hustlers. They just want to move, 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 move. How, what can someone who's listening today ask themselves or maybe do as a kind of like let me just check how the culture of my company is is that kind of let me just before i call rail and spend you know some money with him or like you know because you are a world expert so if somebody really wants to make a massive difference they got to definitely call you what could they do before to play around with the idea to understand what's going really on in my company so there's i mean there's 
there, there, we actually have culture management tools now and, and, and a tool is only as good as the input. So the input that comes from people um, and one of them, we actually measure um, and this is the technical side of it, the non-financial KPIs. So the traditional problem in organizations is you measure performance on numbers and the numbers might lag the actual activity by up to 12 months. If you, you know, if you're selling big items, you know, you might do the sales activity now and get paid in 12 months time. And that's reflected in the financials. Whereas culture is a leading indicator of the organization. So if we measure culture now and measure in six months time, we may not have had any financial change, but we'd see a cultural change. So you can, we actually have tools that can measure the soft stuff, such as culture and leadership. But more importantly, what's come out of my 87 companies that I've interviewed so far and my own experiences with other companies, but the 87 interviews is that about 50 of those have statements of purpose or values. And they're not complicated things that go on the wall that nobody remembers. They are things that can be actionable every day. So what's the difference between purpose and values? Purpose is how the organization deals with all its stakeholders. That's the internal team, the external team, the public, everyone like that. Values, on the other hand, define the way that people internally deal with each other. Okay. And of the 87 interviews, only two of the companies had fun, F-U-N, fun as, an, as a value. And that struck me that more companies should have fun. Um, you know, in my book, one of the chapters, which was written long before I started these interviews, was, was called Have a Fun Environment with a Serious Culture. And, and so I embodied that idea for a long time. But only two of the companies actually put fun in as a core value. If you're not having fun, you shouldn't be working here. And so it is about looking at, so I, one of the companies I was consulting to, um, um, not in, in Australia, in South Africa, I asked the, the board of directors, I said to them, so what is your purpose? And they said to make money. And I said, that's great. If you don't make money, you don't survive. So that's not a bad objective. But how do you describe that in, in South Africa, particularly where the majority of your workforce come from, um, you know, traditionally um, low, lower income? It was a, it was a labor intensive um, business. And I said, so how do you describe that to your team? And they said, we don't. And I said, well, so what motivates them? So we don't care. We've got a 25% staff turnover rate. And, you know, if they leave, we just replace them. There's, there's, 10% un unemployment. And I went, so, so th this is not making any sense, you know, and it was interesting because one of the other directors called me, they had a big staff and they have 250 staff. He called me a few weeks later and said, Oh, they just had a big staff meeting and the managing director stood up and started talking about values and culture. So it was the first time in, in four generations of that organization that they'd started dealing with values and purpose and trying to find a purpose greater than themselves. And, and so in, in Australia, a classic example is Westpac Bank. I mean, everyone likes to bag the banks, but I'll use Westpac as an example. Besides whatever their internal culture is, for many, many years, they have um, sponsored and supported the rescue helicopters on both coasts of Australia. And the rescue helicopters are for surf life-saving for people who stuck in the ocean, need rescuing, etc every staff member in Westpac identifies themselves as Westpac's purpose as to make money to support surf life-saving helicopters. 
I mean, it, it's, a, it's a minuscule amount compared to their overall profitability, but it's incredibly powerful, the branding internally and externally that they've created with that. Mm. So as a small business, it's about, it's about looking at things. You know, when people come here into my office, I have 15 staff, um, and they come into the office, they're always struck by the culture. And when I asked them to define what it is, they said it's just the way people talk to each other the openness that people have, the, the way that if somebody's having a bad day, everybody picks it up and rallies around that person. There's lots of things you can put into place. It, you know, when it, the last three months of lockdown is a good example. Every morning I would wake up and on our, our group chat, I would send an, are you okay message? That's it. And I said, don't message the group, message me privately but I want you all to know that I'm thinking about you. Are you okay? Just a way of keeping the team Simple. together. We'd have a zoom chat as a team when everyone was working from home one, you know, once, twice, three times a week, just to catch up, just to say, how are you doing? Are you managing? Okay. Anything I can do to help you. So, you know, from the smallest thing, I mean, we have, I pay for lunch every Friday for the team and it's become a big thing that every Friday morning, my PA will contact the team and go, what do you feel like for lunch today? And they'd order lunch and we'd all sit around. It's a little harder now because of social distancing. We've had to spread the, the area where we eat a little bit longer, but um, everyone sits around, has lunch and doesn't talk about work. They talk about their weekend, their life. You know, if they're religious, you know, they're going to church on the weekend and what they're doing. You know, if they're going out for drinks that night, they talk about that. It's about creating that environment where people are safe and happy to talk. I and love that so much. And, and you know, I, I, I wrote down a couple of notes here while you were speaking because, you know, I, I love people so much. And, uh, you know, there is, um, I've learned that there's a, there's a kind of a, a red line. And maybe you can help me maybe clarify that. Maybe it's my misunderstanding behind the, corporate culture that the owner like i and my wife as the owners of the company we want to bring into the company like we believe like our key values in the company is like kindness resourcefulness gratefulness you know just such things like open communication like i want them to network this is so important for me and you know so first of all whenever i'm in the office which now hasn't happened for a few months because of the situation in the world we try to run events uh, whenever I'm not in the office, we try to help them run masterminds. How do you, you know, so every single time a new person joins the company, how do you, what's the easiest way to kind of bring them in so that they feel this culture? They don't have to wait until that next event. How do you do that? Because what's going on in the world right now is people are going to change industries. People are going to change jobs. People are being fired. You know, there's going to be a massive change in an organization. There's already stress in people like, oh my God, I haven't worked for a couple of months. Oh my God, I have, you know, two, three kids and I need money. And they have to go into a new company and a new industry and a new team. And like, it's, it's usually a culture shock. What's the best way for an individual who's listening, not the company, an individual, what's the best way for them to adapt? And what should the company do in order to ease them into the situation? Well, there are a few things. I mean, one, I'll take a lesson that that I like because I, we encourage it internally, but we're a small team here. 
Um, one of the one of the worldwide networking groups um, says that their members should arrange once or once a week between their meetings a coffee date with someone else in the networking group. Okay, so you know we often yeah it is been but 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 I like that idea in the corporate sense where where you turn around to somebody and say right you've got five colleagues well you can sit at your desk. And not do anything or you can you know we, we speak of the, the 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 water cooler standing around the water cooler and today the virtual water cooler so how do you create that so so over the last few months i've been having virtual coffees well here's my water here all right so um been having virtual coffees with people because of networking and so you know that's that i think is the most critical is to is to take people out of it even if they walk down the road to the local coffee shop and take off half an hour and go and have a coffee. Um, I think that that one-on-one -on -one interaction with colleagues is the best way for people to get to understand the organization and good and bad. I mean, they need to actually talk to the disgruntled employee and the happy employee and then find the happy medium between those because they're but all going to be- company's responsibility, like what you just said to me, this is a massive golden nugget. Like having coffee yeah. with people virtual coffee five ten minute breaks to me that is so important but if people don't take that initiative because they're so busy and they're so this and they're so that is it the company's responsibility to somehow bring that in from a corporate culture or yes. is it the individuals that should want that or not want that well when i think so it go back go back to the the personalities um the the, the you know the blue personality um, they loved coronavirus. Why? Because it meant they didn't have to see anybody. They didn't have to talk to anybody. Okay. Whereas the reds were going, Oh my God, I like, I'm, I'm itching to get out. I want to do stuff. I want to talk to people. The yellows and the blues relationship driven. They wanted to be around people. The blues said, this is fantastic. Okay. So, you know, yes, there are going to be people joining the organization who are the blue behavioral style who don't really, they're happy to sit at their desk, headphones on, and just do their work the whole day. And so, you know, it's their team leader. You know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a firm believer in, in leadership. So you actually have to sit down with people. So again, as we've come back into the environment now, I've sat down with my team members, my, the, the team members who are commission driven, sales driven. And I've said to them, right, so where are we going? Where are, how can I help you, you know, reinvigorate your business? What are you going to do with the, you know, the thousand inquiries you've had over the last 10 years, how are you going to start communicating with those people? Because they're in trouble. A lot of them financially in trouble. How are you going to reach out to them? Let's work on a business plan for you individually. And, you know, so we'd sit down and we wouldn't do it a formal meeting in my office. We'd sit in the kitchen over coffee and do that because it needed to be a fireside chat and not a formal, this is what you need to be doing. It needed to be a more, you know, a less prescriptive environment. And so absolutely, I think you're right. The networking in organizations, you know, traditionally teams, the, if you talk to most team development guys, they tell you the process is you form, you norm, you storm and you perform. Okay. I think we, in, in, in the world of, of Facebook time and, and LinkedIn time and Instagram time, we don't have that time anymore. We can't, take that time to let our teams build. We have to go from forming to performing. And so how do you do that? You create the interpersonal relationships. 
I love that. From forming to performing. That could be applied to a lot of things in life. I love that in business. This is really, really, really cool. Um, you, you said something that, you know, struck a chord with me with the, again, you went deeper into this whole idea of having a coffee with someone in your kitchen. And, you know, what happens in companies, you know, before Corona, people would just go get water and they would pass by someone. They would say, hey, do you want to come with me and let's grab a coffee? Or they would get to the coffee machine and someone would be standing there and they'll start talking to them. So that's very spontaneous. It's very much, you know, just following your own intuition of when to go to get some coffee. <laughs> Excuse me. How could that potentially be used today? Because I'm speaking to a lot of company owners around the world right now. I'm helping them with strategic networking, you know, methodologies for the organization. And some of them are saying, Gil, I don't think we're going to go back to our office. We're saving so much money and so much time by having people stay at home. People don't have to drive to work so much every day. People are like, so potentially what's going on right now in the world is just a way for us to learn some lessons that we can do things from home. We are resourceful, you know, if we're sitting on our sofa, actually. Um, how can people, you know, maybe this is going to last a few more months. How can people utilize that whole idea of like, I'm just going for a coffee and I'll get someone on the way. How can that be brought into companies? Because I think that is so useful and so practical today for people who are just working, 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 then they get hungry and they go to the fridge and they get some food and they don't have that, they, they, you know, that whole idea of social distancing messed us up because so, no one actually wrote down what social distancing is and how people can still connect, how people could still, you know, network. How would you, how have you been, you know, suggesting companies to do it so that they still have that interpersonal relationships with company, with people within the company? I mean, it, it is going to be a big challenge. I mean, I, we know that, I, I, but I think it is about, it, it's about, you know, having the one-on-one -on -one conversation, just encouraging people to exactly the same way. Well, firstly, you know, in an ideal world as a boss, the traditional boss model is, yeah, we want our staff to put in 10 hours of work and get paid for eight. So that's, that model's long gone, okay? I was talking to a law firm, um, a, a partner of a law firm here in Perth, and he said he doesn't care. They must bill seven hours a day that staff while they're working from home, but they could bill from six o'clock in the morning till lunchtime and from five o'clock in the afternoon. So that's been a major shift as well. And so... I, you know, I was chatting to him about what are you doing? And he said exactly the same thing. We're encouraging people to start just communicating, to actually taking time out in the middle of the afternoon because we know they're going to work at home, you know. So that was part of the cultural shift I've started seeing is that people are being told, don't sit at your desk. Because traditionally, if you think about it, you sit in your office, maybe you go to the coffee machine, maybe you have a coffee with someone, but you're in your office between 8.30 and 5. That's, you know, if you're in consulting firms from seven until seven, you know, but, but that's your time in the office. If you, if you working from home, when majority of staff are working from home, if they're not time dependent, so, you know, if they're on a call center or they have to be able to answer phone calls during the business hours, not much you can do, but you know, what, what we set up here was we had the switchboard extensions running to mobile extensions. So, for those who are working from home, if somebody dialed the switchboard number, we could put calls through to their mobiles. Not fancy technology, but it works. 
or it allowed people to go, I'm just going out down the road, I'm going to Coles to do the shopping, but I'm available on my phone. It gave them a break from the from that. I think as look in Australia, we're lucky. You know, we're at we're at phase three of breakout from lockdown already in Western Australia. We can have gatherings of a hundred people now. Coffee shops and restaurants are back open. So I think we've got out of it a lot quicker if we don't have a second wave of, of coronavirus. But if we if we stay as we are, I mean, I, already I've had people coming and saying, let's have a coffee this week, let's have a coffee next week. So I think that thing's starting to happen. From a corporate perspective, as employees are working from home, I think they're going to be three, and I, and I quote a, a fellow futurist here in Australia, they're going to be three places people will work. The one is from the office, and most people are being encouraged in a lot of large corporations to carry on working from home. The second one is to work from home. And the third one is a a co-working space and or a, a hub space where people will be able to go just to have human interaction besides their, their pets and their kids and so i that's how i see corporations going in the future and that would be a strongly encouraged in other words if you've got a whole group of staff in a particular area of a city you know either rent space by the hour at a co-working space as opposed to them going into the head office, let them go in and collaborate with, with live human beings, as opposed to staring at screens like we've all been doing for the last three months. So that's that. how I think it's gonna happen. That's the Australian model. I mean, internationally, I think we are ahead of the curve, um, a long way in Australia ahead of the curve. Um, I'd like to say we're gonna keep it like that, but who knows when we open up our borders. Well, I, I you know, I'm an optimist. So I think that everything is going to be great. And, you know, even if another wave will come, which I believe it will, we're just going to be ready for it. And I think that, you know, your subject of, of corporate cultures and just really transforming businesses by looking at how, what the culture is like, I think it's going to be really be one of the most important subjects for business owners to really look into. And one of the, um, one of the ideas that came to, to my mind a few months ago when everything kind of started to lock down um, is uh, to do drive-by chats. A drive-by chat is really randomly calling someone when you want to call them and ask them if they have a few minutes and that's it and just take 10 to 15 minutes maximum from them. But to me, a drive-by chat is a very long coffee break. Uh, yeah. And it's really randomly calling people. And I've been doing a lot of that in the last couple of months. And it's been very successful. Some people who don't want to talk, they just don't answer the phone. But if they answer the phone, they're super happy to talk to you. It's been really exciting. And I've been doing that a lot. And I don't know about you, but well, I actually know that voice messages and voice messages to me is like allowing someone to, you know, go to the coffee when they want. And when they want, they can listen to me talk to them for two, three minutes. Um, as I noticed, You've been, you've been telling me that for the last while, and I, I spent a lot of time sending you voice messages this weekend. Yeah, no, so voice messages, I think, are very powerful for anyone who's listening. Uh, keep them short, keep them to the point. If you're saying super important stuff that needs to be searched for later on, they're not going to be able to be found. But if you're sharing people's stories, ideas, concepts, you know, kind of building and building and building a fruitful relationship, I think that voice messages are very, very powerful 
to build a, to build also a culture within a, a network within a relationship that you're building. So, Rael, I know that in in both in your book and a lot of your speeches, you speak about the failures, you speak about the crises that you've been in, you speak about the challenging times, whether it was jo- uh, Joburg or whether it's your time in Australia. Can you go back to a time where maybe you know companies were facing maybe an example you can give or time in history where companies were facing stress like they are right now and what is the the immediate actions that small and medium medium sized companies should take right now when it comes to the culture when it comes to understanding who to hire and maybe who to fire like i chose to fire a couple of people right when the when the you know quarantine started and uh, because when we audited our culture i understood that these two people would actually not help me in the next few months. I, I felt to my gut that they, like, they would be negative and they would like, and they did, and they started blaming me as the owner. They said, well, it's your fault that we don't have any sales. And it's, you need to come up with new solutions and you need to come up with new products for us to sell and then we'll have money. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, you know, like this is not, this, this is not all my fault, this is the world. And, I spoke to a few of my business friends and a lot of them were faced with very similar situation that some people in the company didn't like understand that this is force majeure, global crisis. This is the business owner's fault. So what can, first of all, business owners do right now? And where does the, you know, where's that red line of, well, yeah, maybe this person is stressed. I need to take care of them. And actually, no, they're crossing a line right here. This doesn't follow our company culture. That person needs to be either, you know, given a warning or maybe, you know, just cut out. Um, I mean, I think, I think the best thing business owners can do is almost, and, you know, to go back to basics, to actually go back to why they're doing what they're doing. You know, look at their why and, and see whether the, the why of the people in the organization is a reflection of themselves and the organization's why is a reflection of themselves. Because, you know, in times of crisis, what we do is the, 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 the why goes fuzzy. And, and I love the analogy that, that I, I borrowed from, from one of the, the founder of Integris, but he often, he talks about what do you do when the why goes fuzzy? And so you have to step back and recalculate. You have to step back and reposition yourself and say, well, those people align with our why. Those people are, you know, but, but going back to why am I in this business? What, what is my objective? What am I doing now? I was talking to, to a, a, a business this last week who own cable and fiber optic distribution and whatever. And for about a year, they've been, oh, should we expand analyzing, analyzing, you know, and eventually they just said, you know what? If we don't take the next step. And so part of it is not, is, is, is inertia. I think the biggest challenge for most businesses now is inertia. You know, I always use the ducks floating on a pond. You know, you go out and you see the ducks sitting on the top of the pond and they look very calm, but you know that they're going like this under the water. You know, that, that's the, 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 their feet are paddling like crazy under the water. And so that, that, you know, what an organization has to do is actually take stock of itself and go, why are we in this business? Let's get over the inertia. Let's not get into analysis paralysis. It's, it's what it says in the back of my book. Just dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. 
And I think the last three months of coronavirus have paralyzed a lot of businesses. They've gone, oh my God, which way should we turn? Yes, but, but that, you know, and I'll use the Australian example. You know, banks were told by the government, you know, up to $250,000, make it very simple for businesses to borrow up to $250,000 right now to keep themselves going. Okay, yes, it is a debt. They're gonna to have to pay back the debt, but you're kind of assuming, well, they have some understanding of what their business is capable of, but they're just not sure which way to go. Should we go this way, this way? Well, you know, back yourself. That's probably the biggest advice to business owners right now is back yourself. Sometimes it means taking yourself out of yourself. So go for a run, go for a walk, go, you know, you know, go and have coffee with friends who are in other businesses and just share and talk to them. And that's what masterminds are about. I mean, it's a good segue into masterminds, but, but that's exactly what it is. The, you know, it is about having a mastermind group, having an external board of directors, having an external board of advisors who are, have no financial interest in your business, but, and can altruistically say to you, yep, that's a good decision go with that decision or, you know, look at these two are about the same. You know, your market's better. You make the decision, but we think on balance are about the same. So the biggest advice to businesses now is to refine their why. That's the biggest thing to refine their why, to go back and look at why they're doing what they're doing to, to make decisions, to get over the inertia, to keep, to keep moving. Because if you don't keep moving, you go, you go backwards and to employ no employ employ the the advice and wisdom of fellow business people around you in some form of either formal or informal mastermind that you can bounce ideas off in a safe space i love so that those would be the three things why, I would be why make decisions and employ more kind of mentors advice yeah yeah, I mean, again, you know, a mentor is going to be there to guide your decision making process, um, as opposed to a consultant that's going to actually try and draw the map for you. And so the, the distinction is the mentor who's running a mastermind for you, and whether it's even a one on one mastermind, I mean, I know that sounds weird, but that's more of a coaching role. But that's what the role of a business coach is, is to sit with business owners and go, okay, I don't know your business as well as you do tell me what your challenges are. And if you don't know what your challenges are, let's go through a process of finding out what the roadblocks are. You know, a classic example is just, you know, we call them, what are your lighthouses? And, and so why a lighthouse? Because a lighthouse does two things. It's either a welcoming light at the beginning of a port, at the opening of a port, or it's warning you of danger. And so it depends on your perspective of how you view that lighthouse, whether it's warning you of danger or welcoming you into the port. It's awesome. 30 years experience in, in, in business Israel has, has given you a lot of insights and a lot of knowledge, you know, to, to be a mentor, to be a, to be a person that can really make a difference in someone's life. And I love your, your segue into masterminds because to me, masterminds is the most beautiful way to attract mentors into your life. You know, at, at any given mastermind, um, you have six to seven people sitting around you who want to add value to you. And um, I know we've spoken about masterminds a lot and, you know, mastermind space really thrives to, to do that for people. We, we're always pushing to, 
you know, to just serve the community, serve our mentors, serve all the experts that come in. I had a curiosity here. And what would you, <coughs> excuse me, what would you say is the best advice that your mentors maybe gave you in your life and in your business while you were going through a difficult time? And maybe you can tell us who this mentor is or give us a little story about sure. one of your best mentors. Okay. I mean, I have a, a, a it was interesting. My ego and my ego got in the way for many years. Um, and it took me a number of years to get over my own ego to actually work with mentors. And that's probably the biggest problem with entrepreneurs in a general sense is that they see themselves as invincible and the expert in what they do. And I was one of those. Um, I had success very early on in, in, in my business careers. And so that made me feel a little bit invincible. I mean, my first mentor was probably actually my first business partner in the education business because we really complemented each other. Um, you know, I was very much the, the sort of running day to day. He was very much the ideas, the marketing guy. But we, we really loved the time of being able to bounce off each other. And we didn't have anyone else we could we could look at or talk to, you know, a couple of, it was just after the MBA. And so a number of my MBA friends would catch up regularly and we'd share what we were up to and ask them for advice, but no one specific. I mean, the last few years, particularly in the speaking space, there are probably two people that stand out. One's on the call today is Lindsay Adams, who I met speaking in Cape Town. A couple of years ago, we both spoke at a, which is very relevant to the world today. We spoke at a conference on diversity and diversity intelligence and diversity and inclusion um, in Cape Town some three years ago. And we met and just became firm friends and confidants. And he gave me a lot of advice about how to grow my speaking business. And we worked together very closely on the colors, on, on the color systems. And Frederick, who you know out of Singapore, Frederick spent time with me and actually was the one who advised me to do the interviews globally that I've done so far. And so those two in, in most recent times would be my biggest mentors in this phase of my life. I mean, you know, as a 16 year old, and there's a story in my book about a guy by the name of Reg Green. As a 16 or 15 year old, I got a job at an electronics shop in downtown Johannesburg. I was a bit of a nerd in those days. I got a radio amateur license. So I've always loved talking to people and I could talk to people around the world using Morse code, very technical stuff. But Reg was in his seventies working at the shop. He had been a radio operator in World War I. And Reg taught me about selling. He taught me about how to sell without selling. And I guess the skill, it took me many years to acknowledge how much he taught me, but he would just talk to people and share his knowledge and his enthusiasm for the product without ever saying to them, you need to buy this. And yet he was the highest salesman in all this equipment that we used to sell just because he was always there. He was altruistic in sharing his knowledge. And so, you know, it, it was an interesting when I wrote those chapters of my book and I went back to think about who my mentors were. People like that who, you know, it was a, about a year of my life where I worked there and how he's influenced my sales methodologies throughout my life. So, you know, there's, you know, th there are probably lots of people like that. I mean, 
when I when I worked for Anglo-American, which put into a context, Anglo-American in South Africa was the largest corporation at the time in South Africa. This was the mid 80s. I worked underground on the mines and then I moved to their head office as an engineer. And I was there about eight months before I went to business school. And when I left, I only saw it 20 years later or 15 years later, clearing out an old box, the farewell card that the team had given me there. The farewell card said, we'll still be here when you come back and buy Anglo-American out. Please remember us. And I thought, you know what, it, 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 was, a, it was something about my personality or something about the way I had dealt with them. But I was in my 20s at the time and I didn't really understand the nuances. I only understood it in my 30s when I actually read that card again. I so, think it's, uh, it, it, it's beautiful the way you speak of mentors, you know, not enough entrepreneurs out there. Um, first of all, like you said, some have an ego and they don't ask for help. I think that's a big thing. They don't ask, they don't ask for help. They don't remember the help. They don't give credit to people who deserve the help. And I think that's uh, such a beautiful thing to, to see in people. Um, to me, I'm always telling people to just put their mentor glasses on. And I literally make a lot of my audiences do that with their eyes to see everyone as a mentor. Oh, nice. Wow, look at that. Why, re why red? Hold on. Is that connected to the red color? Oh, you have all colors. Oh, you I have, have all colors. I have all of them, including those. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That is fabulous. Okay. I need to get some nice glasses like that. That's cool to have as well, a it, 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 The analogy there is that when you're talking to somebody who is a particular style, you need to get out of yourself and put yourself in their color so that you can communicate efficiently with them. And so, you know, I do that jokingly in, in some of my talks. And, and because yellow personalities are all about fun, that's why they have the fun glasses. Nice, I love that. So uh, we have a few questions from the audience and I know that uh, my team collected question from um, the post that we made about you. Quite a few people were asking because of the time, time zone, not everybody could join. So, but before that, there's one question that we always like to ask uh, our friends and mentors and, and experts that come into, uh, you know, our interviews is what is the best question that we should be asking you to gain the most amount of value from you? That's a tough one, um, actually. Um, I mean, I think, I, no, but I think, I think it comes down to, you know, what's my core business philosophy, you know, in other words, what do I share with people? And, and I guess one of them is to keep it simple, is that in this current world of overflow of information, where, as you said, you're not sure about something, you just go to Google and you ask, and there are 27,000 answers, and that's only on the first few pages, okay? And so, you know, we, we get people into analysis paralysis very easily because there are also so many conflicting views in the world. And so I believe in keeping things simple. I believe in, you know, the, the one thing I do in, in, in any business is I turn around to them and say, that's great. You've got a, a fantastically complicated computer system that runs your business and communicates your CRM system, whatever it is. And you asked earlier advice for a company bringing on new staff. And it relates to that. I've turned around to a number of companies and I've said, can you draw out not your organization chart, 
but your workflow in your organization on a single A4 piece of paper. And they go, no, we can't. You know, it takes up three walls just to explain that. I said, that's great. But when a new employee walks in and they look at that, it's like when you're running up a mountain. You know, the advice I was given, and, and as you can see, I'm built like an athlete. The advice I was given as a, as a runner was when you're running up a hill, you know, you look down at your own feet. You don't look at the top of the hill because you watch your feet, you watch your feet, you watch your feet, and suddenly you're at the top of the mountain because it's in small bite-sized chunks. If you can explain the way your organization works on a single A4 piece of paper, it's not daunting for a new staff member. They get to it. They get the process. They may not get the detail of each little block that you've drawn, but they get the process. And that's more important than the detail. They can get the detail later. And so, you know, simple things. So you've got a fancy CRM system and, and a lot of companies have them, but how do they manage workflow? Because somebody has to log on and check this and whatever. I'm a very visual person as are, as are you. And so I have, and I'm one of, one of the, the people I'm busy coaching at the moment has gone and done exactly this as well. So in my mortgage business, Every staff member has a whiteboard, traditional old style whiteboard next to their desk. And on that desk, it has five columns on that whiteboard numbered Monday to Friday. And so if they're dealing with Gil on a Monday and their bank says they'll give you an answer on Wednesday, they write Gil's name down on Wednesday and then forget about Gil till Wednesday because they're not seeing the mountain, they're seeing the baby steps. Okay. And so they've broken down. So any staff member has managing 40 to 50 clients in a week. If they walk in on a Monday morning and see a pile of 50 files, their heart starts beating rapidly because they look at their workload. But if those 50 files are broken down into 10 per day, it's achievable. It's small bite-sized steps. And, and so it's about, you, you said about people working and working and working so hard. That's because they have no keep it simple structure keep it simple that says it's just bite size and we can all manage bite sizes and if you choke on the bite size then take smaller bites until you get to a level where it's flowing and so this company that I'm, I'm coaching here in Perth she did exactly that she went and put a whiteboard in her office and started just having a visual reminder on her wall of all the things she wanted to achieve and with the team members and a little thing there was customer um, feedback. Big note on top of it, customer feedback. And so her office is off the reception and every time a customer walked in and she heard some good feedback or bad, she'd get up and say, sorry, can I just ask you more about your feedback? Because she's giving it to the reception and started making notes of customer feedback. So it's visual reminders. It's, it's you know, and, and again, put a, send people, send everyone a whiteboard to put next to their desk at home. Um, and on that whiteboard, maybe you have imprinted on there, have coffee with friends or do something. But uh, um, uh, that, that's, that's one of my key philosophies is keep it simple. Business is not complicated. Business is simple. You know, our process internally may be complicated, but business is simple. We have customers, we sell to them, we make profits, we invest some of those profits, we give some charity, we invest in causes, and then we live our lives and, and we do this all over again. Wow. I love that, man. Thank you so, so much for that. That's like, 
Firza, I love asking that question to people for them to come up with their own question and answer because it's always so powerful to know what's burning in their heart. And that was really, really beautiful to take these steps. And I think this is really important, especially these days for those small players out there that don't have so much cash flow. You know, like one of the, um, the, the, the segments that we have on Mastermind Space is we started a relationship with an organization called Real Connection in South Africa. And we now actually have a lot of different people from South Africa who are joining the community of Mastermind Space. And they're looking to contribute. They're looking to learn. And there's maybe some advice that you can help them with because we from them because they love it. From what they're telling us in South Africa. Why don't you just repeat that, Gil? Your, your audio went a bit crazy there. Oh, sorry. I missed the last sentence or two because the, the audio yeah. dropped out. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Bali, Bali connection sometimes. A, a big chunk that we have in mind space these days are people that come from an organization. A lot of feedback from them, especially about you, because they love African. Okay, I'm gonna guess your your audio has gone crazy. Um, Are we losing the we're losing the audio. Yeah, but you're in Bali time, but that's okay. I kind of you were saying advice for that Brian's um, team in South Africa and his group in South Africa. Um, yes, I mean I think you know talking to businesses in Africa right now. Um, I mean we're only. We're only 26 years into the period post the first democratic elections. And it's been a remarkable 26 years there. I mean, I don't, I don't do a whole lot of business there. I haven't, I've been back, you know, I, I spoke there two years ago at a conference, um, but I, that was the last time I was back there. But what I saw was, and uh, you know, there is still obviously an, an underlying group of people who are racist in nature, and that's okay, that's what it is, it's gonna be another generation. But there's an incredible level of acceptance um, right now. Um, there's an incredible level of acceptance right now of uh, differences of color. That said, um, I think slightly critically, I guess, the government's um, emphasis on black empowerment on BEE, or they call it BEE or BEEE um, in South Africa, where you had to have directors of color, etc., created an underlying market where people were just basically becoming directors of companies to enable those companies to get government contracts and things like that. Um, unfortunately, I think that's created a skewness in business as well. And talking to my entrepreneurial friends in South Africa, small businesses, you know, 10 staff, they don't really have a board of directors, they don't even have any of this. They've been under a lot of pressure in Africa to, to keep going and to be seen to be doing the right thing. Um, and it's been hell of a complicated. I mean, I think, I think the problem in Africa is that the government is still blaming a lot of stuff on what happened 30 plus years ago. 
Um, and I think that's impacting on business. Um, I think there are some amazing people out there who are doing amazing things in South Africa um, to bring the country together despite the challenges. But I think the, the average small business there needs to, to, to look beyond themselves. I mean, I think they have to, they have to create opportunities for um, equality. Uh, equality is probably the wrong word. Um, you know, shareholding, um, things that are, are, are merit-based, because I think the next generation need to understand that, that, that things are not going to be handed to them. I think organizations that create a meritocracy now and not an entitlement will be the ones that will survive in the future. So create an environment where you nurture team members, you nurture future leaders, and you create financial incentives and other incentives, shareholdings, employee shareholdership schemes, even in an organization of 10, where you are nurturing the next generation of leaders of color, you need to be creating an environment where it's a genuine um, promotion, it's a genuine incentive, a genuine education. Because I think the last 25 years have seen you know, some oligarchs develop there because they were in the right place at the right time to join companies. And I think it's left, you know, the rich got richer and the poor got babies is an old saying. Well, that's what's happened. You know, the poor have gotten much poorer and the rich have gotten much richer and there's a very small emergent middle class. I think that that emergent middle class are the ones who need to be nurtured and given education opportunities and given opportunities to shine. So I think that's the only way that, that Africa will survive. Well, South Africa will survive more than the rest of um, Africa. That's, that's amazing advice. You know, we, we, we do have um, quite a few people from South Africa in our community, and uh, many of them are actually in their, in their 50s and 60s. It's quite interesting that they've reached out to us, and we weren't initially thinking about that target audience uh, for masterminds, but they're loving it, and they're contributing a lot. Is there any kind of a specific advice that you can give people who have maybe, you know, left the corporate culture world not that long ago, and now they're interested in getting back in there or starting something again? From a business strategy, from culture, from age group, is there any kind of advice you can give to that audience that's kind of at that stage of a life where they can't just you know, you know, they're not as flexible, maybe they're not as tech savvy. How can we help them? Well, it's funny you, you say that and, and, and a conversation with my wife the other day, who, um, you know, 30 years on you know, 30, we've been married just over 30 years now. And as she said to me, you're putting so much effort into this new business of yours that I've started. And she said, and you know, when's it going to pay off? And I said, you know, I said, you've forgotten what I did 30 years ago when I started my first businesses and 20 years ago when I started off in Australia. I didn't even think about the timeline of when it was paying off. I thought about the fact that I knew my why. I knew what I was doing. And so for, for somebody in wherever they are, it doesn't have to be in South Africa, anywhere in the world, who potentially has been made redundant by the corporation, which is a bigger challenge, 
But you know, someone who's chosen to leave the corporation or has been made redundant and is now at a point of saying, yes, I'm going to start something. They need to go back to basics and go, I'm going to do something, but what is it? And is it going to make me happy? And I'm not talking about financially happy. I'm talking about, I, I, I've spoken about why a few times. But if you don't have your why right, if you don't have your motivator right, if you're in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, it's probably harder in your 50s and maybe even your 60s because you're a little bit set in your ways. You're used to earning an income. You're used to the good life. You know, but you're also at a point where you're at your peak earning capacity because hopefully your kids have left home. Well, maybe they're bungee kids because you have, you've got young kids, Gil, but we call them bungee kids because they leave home and come back and leave home and come back. Okay, so maybe your kids have left home. You know, maybe you're at a grandparent stage already, but it's your peak earning capacity because your expenses are the lowest. You don't have school fees. You don't have kids to worry about in that sense. And so... The challenges that you would have had being an entrepreneur in your 20s and 30s are completely different to your 50s. So your 50s have to be driven by why. Doing something that makes, you don't have to be altruistic. In other words, you can go into a business to make money, but make money that it makes you feel happy because you've made an impact on people's lives. You've done something that makes you feel better because, you know, you can go out and get a job as a car salesman. But if you're not feeling that you, 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 you coming home every night and drinking, you know, because you feel that it's, your life's going nowhere, well, then your life is going nowhere. So somebody who's starting out in their fifties or sixties needs to find their purpose first. That's sorry, it's a long way of explaining, but find your purpose, find your why. Simon Sinek said, start with why, um, uh, uh uh, you know, it's been said a few times by a number of people, but start with why. I love that. Very, very, very wise advice in general for people, not just, of course, in South Africa that have reached out to help with questions, especially for you, but people really all over the world to uh, revise their why. And one of the comments I tell people that these days with technology, you know, 50, 60, 70 is not towards the end. It's just actually the beginning. Uh, I'm, you know, the sort of articles I'm reading these days and being told that we can live until 150 quite easily. So it makes things a lot of fun. It, it puts me in a position where I'm like, oh, wow, I'm just a teenager. This is cool. I have so much more to learn. It's exciting. Well, I mean, 50 is definitely the new 40. You know, everyone says, says that jokingly, but, but I think it, it is a different time in your life. You know, it is, it is much harder to you know, particularly if you're in the corporation, the problem with most corporates, and again, one of my core business philosophies is never ask staff to do anything you wouldn't do. As people have been in corporations for a long time, they've forgotten about doing the basics. They've forgotten about, so a classic example is here in my office. The men's toilets were rather smelly. Let's put it that way, just, just whatever. And so I got my PA to order these um, uh, things that you put into the urinals just to make it smell better. The first day they arrived, I went and got a rubber glove, showed my staff, all the, rub all the men in my office, where the rubber gloves were, took the bucket, 
and went and did it myself. That was six years ago. I've never had to do it again because I showed them that wow. I was happy to do it. And so unfortunately, people going into the entrepreneurial world at the age of 50 plus who've been in the corporates have forgotten that skill. Mm. Right? They, they think they can buy in the expertise and then you become beholden to people. So yes, you might have to pay your bookkeeper to do your books because you're not a bookkeeper. That's okay. But I go back to what I said earlier about education. You have to understand the financials. You don't actually have to do the work, but it's about not being afraid to knuckle down and do the work. Um, you know, and so, and that's a hard mindset to come across. It's a hard mindset when you had a PA bringing you coffee three times a day to suddenly going, Oh, I have to actually go and make it myself. It's uh it's it, it's simple, but it's it's such powerful advice. You know, first of all, do it yourself. I love that. I believe in that as well. And so many people that we look to hire these days actually were specifically saying, um, you know, like we're we're not just saying, but we're looking for the doers. We're not looking for people that just come in and like I have all the answers and I just need to tell people what to do. I want people who are willing to do it themselves, get their hands dirty. And to me, that's the entrepreneurial way. Rael, we have so many questions that have been sent in through the different chats. I just want to go through them uh, quickly. So like short questions, short answers. Sorry if we're not answering everyone's questions, guys. I'm getting them from four different places, which is so cool. So we have someone from India, uh, Gaurav. Uh, who do you prefer to keep as an employee during this time? High trust or media, uh, high trust with medium skills or low trust with high skills? Definitely high trust because, um, and again, a company here that I was talking to the other day, a, a medical company in Australia, all the directors took a 50% pay cut so they could keep every single staff member on for the last three months when they weren't that busy. And so it is about the trust. Our skills you can learn, um, but somebody who you don't trust that has high skills will sell you for another $2 an hour. We'll, we'll move jobs for another $2 an hour. Now, that said, in the modern world, the millennial world and the, and the Gen Zs, you know, we don't expect lifelong loyalty. We expect three to five years and then people to say, I'm moving on because I need a new experience. So that's okay. But I want people around me that I can trust. I want people around me who I can trust and work with rather than those I don't trust. Because if you don't trust them, well, that's half the relationship gone. Nice. That's going to segue to another question from Lionel from South Africa, who's actually asking about trust specifically. How do you know if you could trust an employee? Okay, so I work from a position of assume you can trust them. Assume you can trust them until they prove otherwise. Okay. Obviously, you have... As a business grows and when we had, you know, when we, we, we've always had about this 15 to 20 staff in this mortgage business, in the financial business, and, and you're bringing people in and you're giving them your clients to deal with, huge amount of trust. And so the conversations, the, the, the line I use in every interview is I will give you enough rope. You're either going to pull yourself out the water or hang yourself, but I'm waiting to see how you react. I love that. That's and, really uh, cool. and it sounds harsh and it sounds, you know, no, black and white, but it's not. It is, 
it is trust everybody make make an assumption you know do your research talk to their referees but you know all those things at the end of the day you give them enough rope and the hairs on the back of the neck the the instinct the gut instinct the gut decision is what really makes your decision yeah i'm a hundred percent with you uh margaret from uh, from london hey awesome i used to live in london for a while uh is asking um so uh rael your your biggest well she used the word f but your biggest failure not f ups uh your biggest failure and what what are you grateful for about that um i learned something so just after coming to australia it's one of the failures but uh, just after coming to australia i was with a venture fund for two years a friend from south africa called me and he said he's found this amazing product out of germany and he thinks i should try and get the rights for australia now i've always in my entire life always besides my age when i was 15 at the at the computer shop at the radio shop everything i've ever sold has been services not products i thought how hard can the transition be to sell product and i was looking to get out of the venture fund because they'd asked me to move to sydney i flew over to germany i bought a couple samples and what the product was was very clever it was a storage system for cds and dvds that went into an, a lever arch file so you could and you thought about it it was the right time 20 years ago the data explosion a kind of positioning was right but i had no idea how to sell product so i invested money in it my partner in south africa and i invested about forty thousand dollars in it and we ended up selling the stock for two thousand dollars about five years later because we hadn't managed to sell it and i realized that i was not a product salesperson i was a service salesperson so that was my biggest it cost me a lot of money but i learned something about myself and how i could sell services because i was passionate about it but this product needed to be sold into stores who then had to sell it on and i wasn't the passionate person standing in the store saying to gil gil you should buy this to store your cds it would be lost and i never got that um, i never got that until i brought the stock in and tried to sell it and so that was a, a big failure i'd only been in australia two years i didn't really understand the market particularly that market of selling product and how you needed multiple ranges and things so but that was my biggest failure in business um in australia it's awesome thank you for sharing that with us i i i love learning from from my failures and other people's failures as well we have a question yeah. from um vladimir hey from moscow yay um I've recently left the corporate world and I'm starting my new business. At what stage of the business should I be thinking about the culture of the company? From, from before we left the corporate. Um, you need to be thinking about what you want it to look like um, from, the, from the day you're there. From the, so, I, you know, the other principle that's spoken about in my book, and it was nearly the title of my book till I came up with a dive-in title, was give up control to gain control. And so it was about defining what you wanted people to do in the company. And as, as I employed staff, I gave up some of my control over those tasks, but empowered them to do it in my way, in the way I had trained them. And it freed me up. So it gave me time to do other things in the business. And so, but I decided up front, this is the culture I wanted. I wanted the culture where people would be happy to communicate, 
just sit around and have a beer on a Friday afternoon. Only one, because others will be drinking and driving. Um, you know, sit around and have a beer on a Friday afternoon. Um, just to, to create an environment where people were happy to be at work. It gives me, one of my team members who just told me the other day, she celebrated nine years here, um, and it was a celebration, said to me about three or four years ago, she said she woke up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about a client. And I said, welcome to my world. I know how much passion you exhibit and how much you embody what I feel if you woke up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about a client. And so when you're starting your business, you're never going to define your culture in terms of a piece of paper and a why and a what. But you're going to create an environment that makes it easy when people come in to see how passionate you are about it and therefore carry on your passion. Love that. Love that. We're going to take one more question. Tom from uh, Toronto, uh, starting a new uh, medical uh, business and uh, I'm looking to hire different people. Uh, should I be focusing on people that are superly highly skilled and that can add value to the company? Or should I focus on people that fit the company culture and I think they can grow within the company? Okay, so the interesting question. So, and, and I'll use my financial services because it's actually a good analogy. I made a decision early on when I employed my first staff and my first broking team that I would never employ anybody who worked in a bank. Now, that sounds counterintuitive because you're going, oh, well, they've been in a bank, they understand a bit of finance. And I didn't, I wanted people who um, I could train in finance but had other personable skills around them. And I didn't want them to be locked in to the when we culture. You know, when we did this, this way, this is how we have to do it here. And so I made a very strategic decision to take people who I thought could sell and then teach them about finance. So now again, in this, in, to answer that question on the medical business, here's the challenge. If the knowledge required is incredibly technical, then you may have to go for people who are incredibly technical. If it's knowledge they can acquire with the basic knowledge of the technical stuff, then I would go for them as long as they fit the culture over and above the highly technical person. The other problem is ego, and I've mentioned that, I had to get over my own ego. If people are highly technically qualified, sometimes their ego gets in the way of them being part of the team because they see their value as greater than themselves. And so by bringing people in who form a great culture, but have the, so again, without, you know, it's hard to talk in a, in a vacuum. If you know, if you're selling medical product and you can train them on that, that's great. If they have to go out and service medical equipment, probably need a bit more technical skill. You know, I, it's a hard question to answer. I think the culture is a big driver but you may need to forego the culture for some high technical skill, depending on the organization. Nice. I love that. Well, I, our, our time is almost up. And for me, one of the most important questions I, I always want to ask people is how can we serve you? Uh, we have a very big community around the world. People are going to be watching this from at least 10 different countries over the next 24 hours. And then in, in, into the future of mastermind space, people will be watching this because it's going to be a very important an integral part of setting up a business and the center about culture. How can we serve you from our community to your community and your business personally? Well, my why, so I haven't really spoken about my why, but my why 
now as a professional speaker, trainer, coach, and mentor, is seeing the lights come on in people's eyes. And so I want to be part of other people's groups. I want to be able to share my knowledge and my skill, both as a facilitator and as a coach and mentor with people to say, you know, reach out. I'm happy to be part of their, their board of advisors, be part of their group, set up the mastermind for them or, you know, you know, with, with mastermind.space, be part of the mastermind.space groups because I think the last hour and a half has highlighted the value that I can add to businesses. Um, both, you know, and, and you, you, my sweet spot is not the, the, the 50 million plus corporation. Where do I add the most value on a personal level right now is probably the 50 million to, 1 million to 50 million. You know, that's the space where where it's still generally owner owner managed owner built um it's not a corporate mentality it is an owner owner maybe it's family money family business orientation that's where i add the most value in terms of masterminds and in terms of helping people grow their businesses awesome thank you well Everyone who's listening now or after, you know, I would highly, highly recommend you look into Rael. If you need any recommendations about him, you can come to us, the people in our community who have spoken to him. If you're looking for someone to join your board, join your mastermind, come to you as a consultant, potentially work with you as a coach, definitely reach out to him. I would highly recommend if you're thinking about it even to just get on a call with Rael on a discovery call. I think a quick drive-by chat, you know, with a coffee next to the water cooler, uh, for 10 to 15 minutes, Rael can give you golden nuggets. He could support you, can give you advice, and maybe you could form a really long-lasting relationship. Rael is definitely going to be back on Mastermind Space. We're going to be building a Mastermind personally with Rael itself. But please give us any feedback. Come back to us with questions if you have anything you want to ask him. And we look forward to having Rael as a big part of our community. Once again, Rael, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you for all of our listeners on Facebook. I'm going to get the guys on Facebook off in a second. Well, any last words to our- no, I mean, it's been great fun. It's been great fun sharing the story. Um, sorry, some of time I just tend to go off at a tangent, but I'm glad you were there to keep me on track. Um, it's been fun and I, I'm absolutely passionate about success. That's my passion, seeing other people being successful. It's not about keeping it all to yourself. It's a big world out there. It's about helping others to be successful. Awesome. Very, very good.